This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. one 408 7669 We got a busy hour coming your way. Ben Dominich at the bottom of the hour and the great Stephen A. Smith, author of Straight Shooter, best-selling book, A Memoir of Second Chances and First Takes. Uh, he's going to be with us in a matter of moments, but let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And at the same time, Putin is able to distract us. So I think actually, you know, people are saying, including a lot of Republicans are saying, hey, we have to defeat Russia in order to focus eventually on China. I think that's a delusion. The reality is at this point, the Chinese are helping to prop up the Russians to distract the Americans in Europe. We'll see. Ellis Bridge Colby with a different view on Laura Ingram last night. Alliance solidified China and Russia pledged allegiance to each other as Russia's war machine is grinding down and weapons depots empty. In Ukraine, how ready is Zelensky's army to surge? And will China start arming Putin's beleaguered troops? World peace is at stake. Number two. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. And that's what's going on as he begins to take on Trump. It begins. Governor DeSantis officially begins to take on Donald Trump and his taunts, the polls uh, and the track uh, so far. We'll see how this goes. Uh, a talented GOP field uh, waits to queue up. We'll see what happens with the president's cases. Number one. I think that if I were uh, Alvin, I would wait for Georgia to go first. Georgia, you have the president uh, calling in, trying to change an election. That seems to me the thing you start with, not this. Alvin Bragg, that is. Uh, that is Van Jones. Trump, watch indictment or exoneration sometime today. What will it mean for Trump's future? And can the NYPD handle the stormy surrender should it happen? The case, the timeline, the folly of the whole liberal lark, in my view, uh, in this case specifically. Uh, but with me right now to talk a little sports and more, Stephen A. Smith, author of Straight Shooter, a memoir of Second Chances and First Takes. Uh, Stephen, welcome. What's going on, Brian? Long time no speak. How you been, man? I know. And also, I should say, you got your uh, you got your Show No Mercy podcast, which is now out. I loved your memoir. I thought I'd like it. I didn't think I would love it. I just think it could be so inspirational for people out there who don't have everything paved for them, like you, going through school not having success, being left back, undiagnosed dyslexia, hearing your parents worry that you're never going to amount to anything, and also having the uh, tough situation at home with your mother working all the time and the youngest of six kids. Did that really mold who you are today? I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, to see my mother uh, work as hard as she did, uh, that certainly is still the level of work ethic in not just me but all of us. All four of my sisters, my late brother as well, who passed away in a car accident in 1992. All of us had work ethic because we watched her. I think the thing that was very, very much a struggle is that we weren't, we were not poor for, you know, 
predictable reasons or whatever, we were poor because my father chose to take his money and spend it on another family. And so because of that, that left us in a hole, a big-time hole, uh, with my mother having to struggle in ways that I personally don't believe any woman should have to struggle. And so because of that, that put a lot of weight on our shoulders, particularly me as a young man, uh, trying to make sure that I didn't duplicate or replicate his actions um, as a responsible adult, as a man that was going to lead his family. And so that kind of attitude definitely uh, it was instilled in me from watching my mother have to go through what she had to go through. And it had a lot to do with the mentality that I have today. Right. I mean, to put it this way, indefatigable, but you also have a sense of self-confidence when in your situation and in your youth, it should be laying the groundwork for anything. But do you remember when you just started believing in yourself to the point where when criti- when the criticism came in, it didn't affect you? Well, to me, I, I think it started in the seventh grade when the teacher told my mother, as I point out in my book, Straight, Straight Shooter, when the teacher points out to my mother that he's not he's not dumb. He's pretty smart. The problem is, is that he drifts uh, because when he's not passionate about something, it's not that he doesn't understand. He's not listening. You know, he drifts and he fades away. But when you find out where his passion is, you'll have a star in your hand. So it started there. But then it really materialized in college because I was playing college basketball. I was obviously on a basketball scholarship um, and going to class and having my critical and persuasive writing professor saying that I was a natural-born sports writer. I knew that I was passionate about sports. I knew that I knew sports. But when you have a professor saying, this guy can write, he needs to be a sports writer, and then he takes me over to the sports editor of the Winston-Salem Journal, and I get hired in five minutes, and you've got a bunch of staffers there that are helping me grow. My confidence emanated from the fact that I knew I was passionate. I knew that I would work hard. And I knew that I was a listener. I wasn't somebody who just talked. I wasn't somebody who was all about doing. I would learn from people who did know, who did have a level of expertise, and who cared enough to make sure they edified and elevated me to becoming who I wanted and aspired to be. And that's where my confidence usually does come from. It's not from the fact that I think I know everything, because I assure you I don't. And I always know that I don't. But it does come from the fact that I know that I'm willing to listen. And the line that I use, Brian, when I give a lot of speeches is, I'm brilliant because I know I'm not. I just listen to those who are and learn from them. That's what I've always been about, and I've always been like that. Understood. And along the way, you have certain people that stood up. So people listening right now, whoever think you're a coach or you're a teacher or you're a neighbor that cares, you could really affect the lives. It happened over and over again just by leading your story. For example, you're a real good basketball player, good enough to get to college, play Division One, but not be a star. But your coach treated Division two, you. Yeah. Division two, yeah. But coach treated you like one because you were in there. He knew you weren't going to be the best player in the team, but he saw something in you, Coach Gaines, correct? Yes, he did. He saw, you know, he, he called me He called me a rebel with a cause, and he said that, damn it, this boy wants to be somebody. And that's what he told my teammates about me when I wasn't around. They told me he had said that. 
And that's why he was always so incredibly supportive of me because he saw a life in me that extended far beyond the basketball court that was going to be impactful and a difference maker. And that's what he envisioned me being, and that's what he made me promise him I would be, uh, particularly when it came to supporting HBCUs and specifically Winston-Salem State University. And that was a problem. That was a promise I made to him, and I've strived to have kept it all of these years. But you made a mistake. You got hurt. You couldn't rehab there. Your insurance didn't pick it up, so you went home and didn't tell anybody. When you go back to the school, they were they were really angry at you. Why was that, and how did they eventually solve this situation? Well, I was, you know, as I point out in the book, I was really, I was incredibly sad because, you know, growing up in the streets of New York City um, and, and going through the struggles and the trials and tribulations that you go through, once you get away to college and you're in a, a college environment with dorms and, you know, thousands of students on campus with you and all of this other stuff, it's heaven. It really, really is heaven. When they say that college can be the best four years of your life, they're not lying because it certainly was the case for me. And I was so happy being there that when I learned I had to leave because my mother's medical insurance wouldn't cover me, um, in North Carolina, I had to come back to New York to rehab once I sustained that knee injury where I cracked my patella in half. I was incredibly depressed. And so I said goodbye to my girlfriend. I said at the time, I said goodbye to Coach Gaines, and I left. And I did not know that the head of the financial aid department had a, had an academic scholarship waiting for me because my grades were good enough to receive an academic scholarship. He had called never returned his call. I never answered his call because I was so depressed. So months later when I came back, he was furious. Uh, Coach Gaines looked at me because he was disappointed in me when I just quit and left school to begin with. But when I came back months later looking to earn back my scholarship, he wouldn't allow me to do it until I spoke to that individual first. And when I went over to the, to the financial aid department to see it, his name was Mr. Heinzman. Um, he didn't want to talk to me, and it was he was so rude to me that I waited in the parking lot for six hours for him to get off of work because I was determined to find out why. And then he just chewed into me and said, you left, you didn't call anybody, I had an academic scholarship waiting for you. He said, you were in our face all of this time telling us that you wanted to be more than just a basketball player, but the second basketball was taken away from you, you quit. He said, you quit on yourself, you quit on the school, you quit on your family. You quit on your friends and loved ones. He said, and I never, ever in my wildest dreams believed that you would be a quitter yourself. You would quit on you. I'm ashamed of you. And I think that um, outside of my mother passing away in 2017, outside of my brother uh, passing away in a car accident in 1992, I think that's the only time I've cried in my adult life. Wow. Uh, but he took action, put you back in. You got an assignment, yep. Winston-Salem. Guess where you they sent you? Men's soccer. <laughs> Wake Forest, men's soccer. Walt Chiswick, who is a, a legend in the soccer world. Uh, yes. You walked up and you didn't pretend. You said, I don't know anything about soccer. You were so honest with him. He brought the team together and said, help this guy out, whatever he needs. Explain the game. So you had appreciation for the sport. And also you realized being honest works. Well, I always knew that from the time I was young. My mother had always instilled in us, it's a lot easier to force people to live with your truth than it is for you to live with your lies. 
you know, put that onus on somebody else's shoulders. Why waste energy and expend energy trying to pretend to be something that you're not? Just tell the truth. You know, you don't have to tell everything about yourself. Everything ain't everybody's business. But when you open your mouth, strive to be as honest as you possibly can be and compel others to live with your truth and your lies. So I've always had that mentality from the time that I was a very, very young person. So it wasn't difficult for me to go up to Walt Chiswick once I was working for the Winston-Salem Journal, and they put me on that assignment uh, to, to, to write about Wake Forest soccer. Uh, but I was in, to this day, I'm incredibly appreciative because he didn't have to do what he did. For a head coach of a top three-ranked team in the nation to call over his entire team and to implore them to give complete access to me over the span of a week just so I could do a great article and, 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 and put myself in a position to be a sports writer. I mean, I just can't say enough about it. It was so many years ago. But to think back to that time, he certainly didn't have to do that. It's one of the kindest gestures I can assure you that I've ever known of in this industry. And this was before I was a professional. And so all of these years that I've been a professional journalist to know and to be able to recall that level of kindness should tell you how impactful it was to me and how appreciative I am of it because, again, it's moments like that that help you get to where you are. And it's amazing, you know, how somebody's kindness can be such a contributing factor. Uh, but it definitely was true in my case. And know it's also cool about you, Stephen A. Smith is our guest. Um, it's great. When soccer gets hot and the World Cup gets in and MLS begins to rise, you were one of the few anchors on, and commentators to not hate soccer and not to minimize it. You you appreciated and understood it. Now it's really helping, right? Well, listen, I would tell you I, I haven't had to cover soccer in many, many years, uh, but I, I know I, I have a pretty damn good idea what it takes to be successful in the sport. And these guys are tremendous athletes. And, you know, football is king in America. But most would tell you the real football is, 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 is what they describe as being soccer in Europe. And when you talk about a globalized sport, yep. soccer is definitely it. And there is no question about it. And it's and deservedly so. A couple of things in the news, Stephen. I want you to comment on this. The passing of Willis Reed. Here's the moment. Game, I know you're a huge Nick fan. Game 7, 1970, uh, cut 41. I think we see Willis coming out. Here he comes right now. Six feet ten from Grambling. The captain of the Knicks, the most valuable player of the NBA. Frazier then slows it down. Is picked up by Jerry West at the top of the post. Reed. Willis Reed scores the first bucket here tonight. And And Reed now is outside. There's his second shot. He is two for two. Willis Reed. So just what he's meant, uh, what is your thoughts about Willis Reed? Well, as a lifelong New Yorker um, and a diehard, lifelong Knicks fan, um, he's synonymous with champions. And obviously that means the world to somebody like myself, Spike Lee, and other Knicks fans everywhere because guess what? Last time the New York Knicks won a championship was when Willis Reed was playing in 70 and 73. And that moment that you just displayed, I mean, people forget the first four games of that series, he had scored like 37, 29 you know, 38, and 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 I, I and I think 29 points again. He was doing it up, and then he got injured in Game Five. Couldn't play in Game Six in in back in Los Angeles. This is against the great Jerry West, great Elgin Baylor, the great Will Chamberlain, and then that Game Seven at the Garden. 
Uh, no one knew whether or not he was going to play uh, because his thigh was that injured. Right. And then he came out. He came out, and and the, the roar of the crowd. You saw the Lakers staring down at him. And Walt Clyde Frazier said, "We knew we had them at that moment because they stopped warming up and they were staring at Willis Reed. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. And it had never the garden had never been so loud. Ultimately, Clyde Frazier saved the day because Will, I'm sorry, no, Willis Reed hit those first two shots of right. him. Those was his only points of the game. And then Clyde Frazier dropped 37 and with 19 assists, and the New York Knicks had won their first championship. But it is without question the most iconic uh, moment." in the history of the New York Knicks franchise and in, the, in, in, in New York City basketball-wise in history. No question about it. We're, but We're going to miss him, and God bless him. All right. Uh, besides that, Stephen, you really don't remember much about him and his career. Uh, listen, listen to pick up his book. It's inspirational. I don't care what kind of sports fan you are. It's great for parents. You want to give it to a kid to talk about overcoming. Uh, it's called Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. And also check out his podcast. It's uh, Stephen A. Smith's No uh, Mercy podcast. Stephen, congratulations on all your success. The best is yet to come. I appreciate you, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. When we come back, we'll open up the phone, 1-866-408-7669. Then Ben Dominic joins us. Busy day. So glad you're here. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. What's your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron, Ron the Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't. I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I can't. Uh, I don't know how to spell the Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and and, and really take the state to the next level. Uh, Ron DeSantis is beginning to take the gloves off. He did it with Pierce Morgan, talked a lot directly about the president, uh, not as direct as President Trump would be on him, but beginning to take it on. Listen, I don't know what it is. There won't be as much drama with me as a leader, and I don't really have any experience paying off uh, paying off strippers, so meaning Stormy, uh, Stormy Daniels. And that's the situation the president finds himself in, while also pointing out the attorney general should not be trying this case. Simple as that. Other people have walked away from it. But I think it's important, and I'm going to talk about this with Ben Dominic next, but I think it's important to point out is that it's beginning. He realizes he's got to hit back. He just can't ignore it because it will be translated to weakness, even though it shouldn't be. you got to be a bigger man to walk away. And Donald Trump right now is gaining strength the morning consult poll has him with 54% of the vote. DeSantis second with 26, everybody else in single digits. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. You also repeated twice you didn't have any knowledge of hush money being paid to porn stars. Was I right to feel that there was a slightly censorious tone to that, that that kind of thing is just not anything you would ever get involved with? Well, I think it's there's a lot of speculation about what the underlying conduct is. That is purported to be it. And, you know, the reality is that's just outside my wheelhouse. I mean, that's just not something that I can speak to. Uh, that is Governor DeSantis yesterday with Pierce Morgan. Ben Dominich joins us now, Fox contributor, editor-at-large at the Spectator World, host of the Ben Dominich podcast. Ben, it begins. Don, you know, <laughs> subtly, 2024 begins against the two heavyweights. Not saying they're going to both emerge uh, as the top two. There's a lot of talent that could get into the field. But what are your thoughts about some of his comments? And I'll play more of them. You know, I... Uh... I'm reminded of the John Facenda line about the NFL. It starts with a whistle and it ends with a gun. <laughs> you know, this is this is a, a serious start to things in terms of the 2024 cycle that we have been waiting for. Uh, because you know, look, the 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 impression is that this is the one guy in the entire field uh, who really seems to get under the former president's skin, uh, who seems to have a, a real animosity for in terms of the the level to which uh, his kind of uh, aggressive insults uh, or hits or that kind of thing have, have been right off the bat. Uh, and I think we've all been waiting to see how would DeSantis respond to this. And look, this is the thing. I, I, I understand that there's this whole idea that you are going to you know, be above the fray, that you're not going to engage in, in these types of back and forth, that you're, you're going to be you know, a, a leadership quality candidate, that type of thing. It doesn't work. You have to actually respond. You have to be able to show that you you can punch back, that you can also take a hit, uh, and that you can respond in kind. I think that what people want to see is not things descend into you know total silliness or, or get out of control, but I do think that people want to see that, that, that you can actually stand up on your own two feet and make a response. When you get these kinds of level of hits, when you're taking these number of punches uh, that DeSantis has been taking from the former president over the past couple of months, I think we've all been waiting to see you know how would he uh, respond, how would he hit back, and I think that now he's doing it, uh, and we're going to see where it goes from here. But I really believe that this is sort of the, the start of this real actual showdown, uh, which I think is going to be impressive and, and is going to prove a lot of things about both men involved. I mean, put it this way. He didn't really have anybody to run against with Joe Biden because he was invisible. They had two debates. I don't think the president did too well in either of them. One was uh, canceled. The first one, it turns out, he did have COVID, uh, COVID-19, to a little bit to the president's, the former president's defense. So when he was on the stage with the Republicans, he eviscerated them. Uh, basically, he did a lot of opposition research, and he knew how to handle a, a big stage. Here's some of uh, Ron DeSantis showing what he's got. Cut 14. What's your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron, Ron DeSanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't. I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I can't. Uh, I don't know how to spell DeSanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. And he went on to say he could beat Joe Biden. So he's getting close. But I think he realized, Ben, you can't wait two months before you start answering some of the insults. And when I asked him, he said, well, Brian, it's just silly season. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm focusing on Florida right now in my legislative sessions. 
Yeah, I mean, when he when he gave that response to you, and I was asked about that this weekend on with Howie Kurtz, you know, I, I criticized it. I said I thought that was a dodge, and I thought that he really should start responding. And, you know, lo and behold, now he is. I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, the, the fact that he had such a significant win in November is a big deal. But until you sort of put that back in people's minds, uh, make sure that it's something that they're still thinking about regularly and associating with you, then it, it has the ability to fade. Uh, people don't have that kind of, of memory of uh, – Oh, yeah, you know, he did win by a ton in a state that, you know, used to be purple and is now deep red. Uh, and, and there's a big part of his policies that have had to do with that. Uh, but I think that he has to make that case and has to make it to the people and make it forcefully. One thing that we know about DeSantis is that he's someone uh, who is, is pretty mild-mannered. He's very much a policy guy. You know, he's not someone who sort of toots his own horn, boasts, and, and, and has uh, kind of this outsized personality. And one of the things about running for president in this day and age is that you actually do need to remind people of the kind of accomplishments that you have of the ability as he said to put points on the board to uh, and to define himself as being someone who is a consistent winner at a moment when republican voters i think are very mindful of the fact that they do not want to put up with four more years of joe biden uh, that they do not want more of this leftist agenda and they want someone who's going to be able to have a lot of confidence that they are going to be able to win in November in 2024 and take this country back on the right track. Right now, the Republican nominee in uh, the primaries is uh, with the morning consult poll. Trump's up with 54 percent of the votes at DeSantis, 26. Pence has got seven. Haley, four. And then he just goes down single digits. Tim Scott, not in yet. Youngkin, Pompeo, uh, I, I think they're both going to get in. Uh, well, I think that it's a fait accompli for Mike Pence, too, and and for the most part, DeSantis. But the president reportedly is happy with all this attention he's getting and being ahead of the news cycle in Mar-a-Lago. He says it's going to help his poll numbers. Do you think fingerprinted and mugshotted will help him? <laughs> well, no, I, I don't actually think. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, Brian. I think we all need to sort of pump the brakes a little bit on analyzing the ramifications of an arrest um, because we didn't really know how the Mar-a-Lago raid would play out. Uh, and I think the political ramifications of it turned out to be going in a lot of directions, maybe solidifying his own personal support, but perhaps you know not actually helping Republicans when it came time for uh, people to go to the polls in the midterms. And so I think one of the things that we have to concede uh, with a little humility is that our prediction ability about the ramifications of previous events like this hasn't been 100% as an industry. And so when it comes to the ramifications of this, does it help him a little? I think it probably does. But I also think that it hurts him with exactly the kind of independent voters that Republicans need to be able, be able to win uh, full you know, national elections uh, in a lot of swing states. And I think that that's something that you know, comes – again, comes to mind for those Republicans who may really like the policies the former president had, may really defend his, uh, his accomplishments, certainly when it comes to the Supreme Court, when it comes to tax reform, et cetera, et cetera, on down the line. But I think that one of the things that uh, is very front of mind for all Republicans right now is that they can't allow, you know, sort of personal vendettas, uh, the, the desire to have, you know, revenge against uh, an election that they feel, you know, was in, in ways rigged against them, either, you know, by the actions of the uh, tech community uh, to silence and censor stories and in defense of, of Joe Biden or other things. But I think that one of the things that really can't uh, be allowed to happen is to have those personal vendettas take the place of 
seeking out victory for the case of uh, not just conservative policies, but for the future of the country so that we don't have to put up with this leftist, ridiculous, silly leadership that we have right now in Washington. Well, I'll tell you what, the perception on the outside will be, oh, just like Pakistan, just like Venezuela, just like Brazil. When you lose an election, you put your opponent in jail. And I just think it, yeah. the country loses. And listen, uh, yeah, if, I, if, if he was I, out there robbing people, stuff. knocking over old ladies, throwing people on tracks, he should be arrested. I don't care who he is. But not for Stormy Daniels, uh, this hush money situation that everybody else walked away from. you got to be kidding me. I could make a strong case elsewhere, too. You're going to go arrest him, but you're going to go indict him on Mar-a-Lago? You better indict uh, Biden for his five locations. They raided his lawyer's office where yeah. they, they asked to come in, but they took his paperwork there. They took it out of University of Delaware. They took it from the Penn Center. They took it from two two of his places. They, he hit it by the Corvette. In his, you can't go for one and not the other. Yeah, I think that this is a, a real situation, unfortunately, that we're in right now where, um, you know, the the left – and the dominant powers that be within uh, law enforcement and within, uh, you know, frankly, you know, whether you want to call it the deep state, they're they're empowered bureaucrats with badges, uh, and they've basically decided to throw everything that they possibly can at this man they hate so much. But in so doing, they're also exposing uh, the hypocrisy involved of how much they've looked the other way when it came to people that they liked. Okay, people who, if they, if you go along with what this, this bureaucrats with badges uh, community wants, they will look the other way right. when you are violating all of these different protocols, violating all these norms. They only matter when they're someone when it's coming from someone who they dislike. They're going down and looking for any kind of way to get you, uh, and they and they're going to just enforce anything that they can in order to do so. To me, the number one foreign policy right now is to make sure that Ukraine is successful and beat back the Russians. And I do not say that, well, we got to focus on our own border and, and China because I think they're one and the same. And they made that clear yesterday when we had the leader of China over the last two days meet a substantial amount of time with Russia, the junior partner. They're willing to take a back row seat in order to have China in their camp and try to restructure the world. And our president can't even find a microphone and read the teleprompter to retort. But General Jack Keane knows what's at stake. And I want our listeners to understand it. Cut Cut 18. Do we want to have diplomatic relations with both of these countries? Do we want to be able to talk to them? Yes. But let's be clear about it. They are both adversaries and enemies of the United States. And the, the fact that we can't use those terms, I think, makes no sense in terms of facing the reality and also educating our own people about what has taken place here. These two countries are threatening our security. Russia clearly wants to reshape the security relationship in Europe. Obviously, if they win the war in Ukraine, we all know what is next because they have told us. Is he speaking in a way that Ben Dominich agrees with? Oh, absolutely. And I have enormous respect for Jack Keane. Uh, he's someone who's, uh, I, who's I listen to on this, and I think everyone should. Look, we have done a bad job, or when I say we, uh, America's current leadership and its JV team from the, uh, from the Obama years uh, has done a terrible job of talking to the American people about why what's happening in Ukraine is so important. Number one, I would say this is an, a golden opportunity for those of us, myself included, who do not want to see American boots on the ground, American lives at stake, for us to get what we want out of uh, American resources, which is, in this case, you know, 
taking uh, taking an, an adversary's military down several pegs uh, with uh, American resources and American backing, but without actually putting American lives at risk in terms of soldiers and boots on the ground. Um, that's a good thing, and it's something that we should be proud of in this circumstance, and it's something that we should continue to do. And Finding an outcome that results in peace and security uh, for Ukraine, for our allies in Europe, should be of the utmost importance. Yes. We are now in a situation in the world where China wants to take over and run everything. And I myself, as, a, as an American conservative and American patriot, I do not like a world that China feels it can run. I do not want a world that, that China feels they can run. I want a world where America can do what is best for its interests and the interests of its people. And that is not possible in a circumstance where we allow China to take over as it has tried to do, as it is continuing yep. to try to do in so many different ways all around the world. And that includes their backing of Russia in this conflict. What drives me nuts is the slow walking of weapons that are necessary. Hi, Mars. No, we can't do that. Okay, you got him. Attack them are going to be there eventually. Why are you waiting? And then we'd say, okay, we're going to give you chiefs. We just don't, excuse me, tanks. We just don't have any. What? We don't have any? Yeah, we got to build them from scratch. Really? This is going to take them over a year. What? We, yeah, you got to be kidding it's, me. It's we don't have any tanks. The Marines gave up their entire tank division to focus on other things for their future, but we don't have them. Well, then you know what happened yesterday? They decided to pick up the pace and start refurbishing tanks that they had. And instead of two years, it's going to be in the fall, which is still way too long. But if you get these fighters that we trained, the arms that we have, they will beat our our enemy that, that considers us their number one enemy, and that's Russia. What is so hard about that? Look, it's incredible how eye-opening this has been, I think, for a lot of people. And I know many people, as you do, within the military community who've been complaining about this for quite a long time, that we have taken our eye off the ball when it comes to the production side of things, uh, the type of, of uh, munitions that we need to be able to have at, at will, the, uh, and the ability to have this type of equipment ready to go is a real problem. And it suggests that, again, you know, this is a military that is focused on the wrong things, and this is particularly true under this administration. Uh, and, and look, you know, I think that these problems go back for years. There's been a lot of pushes for reform made uh, at various points, but we really have to take a hard look at this because we are not prepared in the way that we need to be, uh, you know, particularly, I would say, on the naval front, but other fronts as well. We do not have things to the point where we can actually push back and do the things that we're going to need to do in the coming decades. You show weakness, like letting them take Crimea and sending them blankets and MREs, leaving Afghanistan with all our equipment behind in our in our pride as well and what it gets is weakness and invasion how many more lessons do we need and we just need a communicator to relay that we have to learn from our mistakes ben dominich thanks so much great to be with you all right listen i'll come back i want to see what you have to say you don't have to agree with us 1-866-408-7669 but you have to be willing to debate it don't move expanding your knowledge base it's the brian kilmeade show From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
This is an interesting moment for DeSantis, who up until this point has really held his tongue. Uh, Trump has been attacking him, you know, day after day after day. Uh, a lot of it you know, relentless and unfair. Uh, and DeSantis has ignored it. And he's chosen now to start engaging. But to your point, doing so in a way where he's laughing at Trump. He's playing down at Trump. He's not hitting back with criticisms, he, but he is no longer ignoring him altogether. We heard his comment from the stage the other day about the indictment and the porn stars, and now this interview with Piers Morgan. And we don't know if that's fueled by his slip in polls, and certainly it's early. Um, but he's the one Republican who's doing it. He's the one Republican who's using this moment, which is clearly a perilous moment for Trump. And DeSantis is the one Republican who's breaking with him. All the others are falling in line. And it does seem like DeSantis is using this ability to try to create some daylight, at least on personality, if not the issues. That's Jonathan Lemire, who's a White House bureau chief uh, for Politico, uh, weighing in and offering his analysis on Governor DeSantis. Now, I don't know what works. I've never seen it work. Now, Joe Biden didn't work against Donald Trump. It was just people looked at Donald Trump and they said they were tired of the drama and they didn't like the way the pandemic was. But the guy was going for four more years until the pandemic hit. And we've never seen anything like it. Don't pretend like you have. 2008 was a, certainly a challenge, but Bush wasn't running again. Of course, when you get hit in 9-11, Bush was able to use some of that momentum and leadership to win. There's always going to be circumstances. There's always going to be things that are happening. I understand that. But without that, I have not seen I have not seen uh, I have not seen somebody effectively attack Donald Trump. William WTRC in South Bend. William. Hey, Brian, thanks for taking my call. You know, they want to play this game. But let's go back to, um, oh, did I clean my server? Did I bleach it? Um, you know, that was part of his, uh, uh, when he went after uh, Hillary, it was part of throw her in jail, throw her in jail. Then you have Shifty Shift that made all kinds of allegations um, and said, I've got him dead to right. Just wait, I'm going to show you. Then you go about the steel dossier where these people lied. They went to a federal judge and had this thing signed, lying the whole time. So if if they're going to indict him, they want to indict him, then let's go back. Everybody now is fair game. Listen, I, William, it's, it, it would really work in the short term for the president's advantage to see that this is pure politics, this small-time DA, this loser, deciding that an old case is a good case, the ones as a zombie case is good enough to make American history and all the wrong reasons. Go ahead and do it. But in the big picture, it's bad for our country. And the double standards need to be pointed out like you did relentlessly, William. Good job. Thanks for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. The focus of it all. Uh, I bring you the latest news. Happy to have with us in a matter of moments Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Man, does that look... Uh, undebatable right now, undeniable as well. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, maybe a future, uh, uh, a future, uh, a future nominee for the Republican nomination. We'll see if he's going to be running for president. I know he went over to Iowa last week. He also has brilliant analysis and understands the Republican field, having worked for the National Governors Association. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. And at the same time, Putin is able to distract us. So I think actually, you know, people are saying, including a lot of Republicans are saying, hey, we have to defeat Russia in order to focus eventually on China. I think that's a delusion. The reality is at this point, the Chinese are helping to prop up the Russians to distract the Americans in Europe. Mm, I don't know if I buy that. Eldridge Colby weighing in last night with Laura Ingram. Uh, Alliance solidified. China and Russia pledging allegiance to each other as Russia's war machine is grinding down and weapons depots empty. In Ukraine, how ready is Zelensky's army to surge? And will China start arming Putin's beleaguered troops? World peace at stake. Number two. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. It begins. Governor DeSantis unofficially begins his 2024 run by answering Trump's taunts, the polls, the track plan, uh, the long term plan and the rest of the talented GOP field's quest to get a share of the spotlight. Number one. I think that if I were uh, Alvin, I would wait for Georgia to go first. Jordy, you have the president uh, calling in, trying to change an election. That seems to me the thing you start with, not this. There you go. Van Jones weighing in on CNN. Trump watch uh, indictment or exoneration sometime today. What will it mean for Trump's future? And can the NYPD handle this stormy surrender should it happen? The case, the timeline, the folly of the whole lark. If you ask me, this is a dead case. If you want to go get him, this is not the place to do it, in my view. Joining us now, talking about stuff that really matters, and that was what took place in Moscow yesterday with the toasting of a friendship over a two-day period, President Xi and Vladimir Putin. Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, welcome back. Great to be back, Brian. Josh, what's your takeaway from the meeting over the last two days? It's We, didn't, we knew about this alliance. We knew he was invited. We know he's going to go to Beijing. But what's your takeaway? Right. Well, I think it should be clear to everyone watching that uh, China is on Russia's side of the Ukraine war, and yes. that China wants Russia to win, and that means if Russia wins, China wins, and that means if Ukraine wins, China loses. So, you know, that Elbridge Colby clip I, you played, I think it's, it's too clever by half. They're trying to say that, oh, it's uh, the Ukraine war is a distraction from the China challenge, but no, actually, they're the same challenge, and, you know, that's like saying the first inning of the baseball game is a distraction from the fourth inning. Like, no, they you have to play both. You just have to do one and then the other. And our enemies seem to realize that because China is helping Russia now. Uh, and what they're expecting is that Russia will help China later when China goes to attack Taiwan. So these things are linked, whether we like it or not. We can't abandon Russia. I'm sorry, abandon Ukraine to fight China any more than we can abandon China to fight Russia. Neither of those make sense because these guys are on the same team. We're on the other team. And it's time everybody just accepted that basic fact of life. So everybody's got their Achilles heel that will get their attention, that it says it's not worth it. Uh, to, get to, to get to China would be the economy. Is there anything that Western Europe could lay out for them and you, uh, the U.S. can lay out for them to let them know if you give lethal weapons, your, your arsenal, to Russia to get into this war, what will happen economically? Should they outline it now, Josh? Right. This is the problem is that we make these vague threats against these dictatorships and we don't tell them exactly what the threats are. Uh, and then when they do the thing that we threaten them not to do, uh, we're like, oh, we didn't really have much of a threat in the first place. And this is sort of how we got into this mess with Russia. If we had been more explicit, because remember, Putin didn't believe us. They didn't think NATO would come together to help Ukraine. Uh, they didn't. The deterrence wasn't real for him. It didn't work. So it seems obvious, at least to me, that when it comes to China, we should fix that mistake. 
and be very, very clear about what the threat is, or don't make it. Now, if you want to say, okay, well, China can sell arms to Russia because we don't care, that's one thing. But if you're going to threaten sanctions, yeah, you should say exactly what they are and then actually do it because we're already seeing signs that they're pushing. They're sending a little bit of ammunition here, a few guns there, a bunch of drones over here, some body over body armor over there. And this is how communist regimes act. They, pro they, they progress until they face resistance. And, yeah, we're going to have to uh, put, our, put up or shut up. So when you talk about decoupling, I mean, that's what's got to happen at a massive level and let them trade with North Korea, let them trade with Russia, let them trade with uh, uh, Iran and uh, good luck with that. So uh, maybe right. maybe they'll do some uh, they'll do some heartless deals in the Middle East and see how it goes. But spell it out. Now, I know they're intertwined. I know I know it's not China just taking. I know that the yeah. Italy and has uh, all their manufacturing is really all their all their manufacturing uh, units are all uh, owned by China. I know there's certain products only owned uh, uh, made by China from our pharmaceuticals on down. But a massive right. push to decouple would get their attention. Right. No, I think it's already happening and I think what's what's funny actually is that they're decoupling from us while we're decoupling from them. So both sides know that some limited decoupling has to happen. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to live in two different worlds with two different economies because uh, that's impossible. It doesn't make sense. It, wouldn't, it would be stupid. We're talking about limited decoupling of the stuff that, one, we need in case there's an emergency. Let's put, like, you know, chemicals and high technology and semiconductors and masks. I guess we're going to need our own Pharmaceuticals. Because they blackmailed us with, pharma with masks and medicine during the pandemic. But anyway, some stuff we're going to need our own stuff. Now, not just us. We can put some of it in our friend friendly countries. It's called friendshoring. Uh, but we're going to have to find the, where the lines are. And the, by the way, the Chinese and the Russians are doing that, too. They don't want us to have economic leverage over them, but we can't let them have economic leverage over us because they will use it to get us to stop criticizing them and to uh, allow them to advance in their uh, designs, which are adverse to ours. In other words, that they mean us harm. So we're going to have to protect ourselves. So the one thing is pretty clear is from China's perspective, and you do a really good job in looking from China. How do they look at it? Well, we cut this deal with nuclear submarines with Australia. All right. We have now expanded our bases in Guam. Well, that's a signal. We have now uh, put expanded bases and cut new deals with the Philippines, where at the northernmost point is close to of their series of islands, a network of islands. It gets very close to Taiwan. So we're making these deals, and now we have Japan doubling its defense budget, and South Korea suddenly making reapproaching with Japan for a common enemy and a common challenge. That's China. They feel like we are surrounding them. Are they right? Right. Well, in a sense, what they're saying is that we have are pursuing a policy of containment. And in a sense, that's right. We don't say that out loud because uh, it's controversial, but basically that's what we're doing. We're trying to contain China's expansion because – uh, they refuse to expand in a way that doesn't threaten our security, prosperity, and our public health. In other words, we're not against China's rise, but they can't have it on any terms. They can't do it in a way that uh, changes the world order in the sense that we lose what we have, which is our security and our economy. So, yeah, it's kind of a containment strategy, if we're being honest. Now, what what the other way to look at that is that, oh, well, we're not really containing them because these are the countries in the region. They're, they're their neighbors, okay? Japan, Taiwan, Australia, the, South Korea, these countries didn't decide to, that China was a problem because of us. They know it because they live there. Yes. And so we should listen to them. So, you know, when you've ruined your relationship with all of your regional neighbors, uh, it's really hard to blame that on Washington, okay? And this is what the Chinese propaganda uh, uh, trip to Moscow was meant to, to, to 
convince us of that oh it's 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 all washington right. that's a, it's the us's problem and everybody else is fine with china's rise but apparently that's not true as you just laid out all the countries that know china the best because they live there uh they're as as concerned or more concerned than we are so admiral uh, samuel paparo was on 60 minutes uh and he's talking about how ready we are for china what kind of how we view the threat here's some of what he says uh is our state of our of our navy cut 26 so are Chinese warships now operating closer to Taiwan after Nancy Pelosi's visit? Yes. Simple as that. He goes on, cut 27. And if China invades Taiwan, what will the U.S. Navy do? It's a decision of the president of the United States and a decision of the Congress. It's our duty to be ready for that. But the bulk of the United States Navy will be deployed rapidly to the Western Pacific to come to the aid of Taiwan if the order comes to aid Taiwan in thwarting that invasion. Is the U.S. Navy ready? We're ready, yes. Uh, I'll never admit to being ready enough. So are we ready from what you know? No, no, we're not ready. <laughs> and the Taiwanese are not ready and the Japanese are not ready. Uh, the Chinese have a huge military advantage across the Taiwan Strait that's growing every day and they're becoming more aggressive more menacing and more threatening every day. And uh, that's a huge problem, you know. And, you know, what the Admiral's saying there is true. It's like nobody knows if whoever's president at that time is going to push that button. So, you know, you would think that the, what we should do is to arm the Taiwanese to the teeth, but we're not doing that either. So, you yeah, know, it's a really, really dangerous situation. It's not a – there's no really good solution for Taiwan. I think what we have to do is back the Chinese military off as long as possible and hope that – uh, they changed their mind because if they were to attack Taiwan, they'd probably get it, and that would be a disaster uh, for the entire world. For it, that would affect our economy, that would affect mm -hmm. the whole region. Um, but yeah, that's a real tough one because uh, you know, yeah, of course the admiral's going to say we're ready, but you know, the truth is, man, I got to tell you that uh, uh, the Chinese are building the biggest military expansion in the history of the world, and they're building nuclear missiles to. Uh, back us off if we try to intervene and they're building economic resilience which is the other piece it's not just about the ships we need to come correct with a real economic strategy for the re region and we haven't done that so you know we're yes we're you know this is a, a a complicated world and you know we have to focus on ukraine but we can't leave taiwan just uh you know just to its own devices that's a, a disaster strategy that will surely come back to bite us no question, uh, because the president of the United States made it clear if you hit Taiwan, we're fighting. And then the State Department walks it back. He said it three times. Right. So uh, they got to work right. that out. Uh, maybe they could just set up a conference call or a Zoom. So, huh. yeah, we, maybe we can just get that set. So we got to get them armed to defend themselves. Correct. China's got a, a Taiwan should, to the best they can get missile defense in there and be able to defend themselves. For some reason, we're not able to get them what they need, even though we've uh, we've placed the order and okayed the order. It hasn't done. And we know the Taiwanese leader is coming here uh, today, I think. Right. She'll be in California to meet with uh, Speaker McCarthy. That's a good thing. Uh, they did that because when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, that was an excuse that the Chinese used to. Uh, ramp up their military intimidation. So this is meant as a sort of half measure. Fine. You know, at least they're meeting. Uh, but the meeting is not a policy. A meeting is not a strategy. And there's a lot we have to do. And there's a lot the Taiwanese have to do. And we better do it quick. Uh, the idea is that the best way to deter aggression is to have a credible defense. 
And, you know, the best way to invite aggression is to look weak and not have a credible defense. And that's where we are now. And that's what we have to fix. How different would this be, even the Ukrainian conflict specifically, if we had came back firm after the, uh, the capture of Crimea, which caught everybody by surprise? Instead, we gave blankets and uh, we gave MREs. So it gave the message to the Russians, you know, keep it going. Don't worry about it. Got some sanctions in there. Some oligarchs won't be able to pay their bills. But what's the big deal? And then the way we left Afghanistan, uh, Josh, it seems every time we show weakness, uh, we pay the price. We want to live in a world where our maturity and we're pulling out. We're showing we're not war. We want to be friends. They look at it as weakness. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that Syria. When the Russians went into Syria and started committing atrocities, we pulled back. We said, oh, that's their problem. You know, so this is a a, a conundrum for U.S. foreign policy. We don't have limited, unlimited resources, Brian. It's not like we can be solve every problem in the world. So we're going to have to pick and choose. But we have to realize that when America pulls back, the bad guys advance, okay, and that there are a lot of countries out there that are willing to do the fighting if we're willing to lead and just give them the money and guns to do the fighting. Ukraine's a great example of that. So, yeah, we, we signaled to our enemies that we wouldn't fight back. And then when it came to Ukraine, we're like, OK, now we're going to fight back and look what we've got. And they didn't believe us. And now we're stuck. So let's try to learn from that. You could be sure that the Chinese are learning from the Ukraine war and they're going to apply those lessons to Taiwan. They're going to have an overwhelming force. They're not going to signal for months that they're building up to an invasion. They're just going to come in hard and fast and kill a lot of people. All right. So we have to make that more and more difficult before they're able to try it. That's a race against time. That's the lesson that we should be learning. And, yeah, we can't be policemen all over the world, but mm-hmm. Taiwan's one we can't lose. That's going to be one that we really can't lose. If you like your the semiconductors that go into your phone and your car and your TV, if you like the I, the notion that you know freedom and democracy and human rights aren't confined to just one group of countries, that they're actually applicable to everybody in the world who's willing to stand up and demand them uh, – choose which one you like. If you like the economic reason or if you're into freedom, into, I don't care. But get on board with this Taiwan thing because it's coming at us and we're, we're, we're behind. We're, we have to do more to get ready, again, to preserve the peace, mm-hmm. not to fight the war, to make sure that the war doesn't happen, which requires us to act now. And maybe uh, China might be asking themselves, I wonder if our military is really as overhyped and overrated as Russia's because they haven't fought since 79 uh, and that was a brief incursion with Vietnam, I think. So, Josh Rogan, always great. I'll talk to you hopefully over the weekend of the weekend show. Um, he, the name of his book, Let's to pick it. it up, to put it all in perspective, Cast Under Heaven, uh, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Uh, Josh, thanks. Anytime. You got it. Listen, when we come back, I'll take some calls. Bottom of the hour, we put in perspective 2024. Right now, we don't understand. We don't know for sure, but they are preparing the NYPD and Secret Service for some type of uh, for Donald Trump's entrance into the fray. We don't think anything's been formalized, but drills have been done. Coordination's been executed. We'll see what it means for Donald Trump's future. And we'll talk 2024 when we come back. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The biggest and most serious challenge to Western dominance that we've seen um, ever, which is coming from China. China is becoming more like Singapore and taking meritocracy 
much more seriously, both in terms of its educational system, in terms of its university system, which is both highly selective and growing. I mean, the way that the Communist Party operates, and if we have America becoming less meritocratic or less enthusiastic about meritocracy and China becoming more meritocratic or at least more enthusiastic about meritocracy, that presents the possibility of a future in which China really pulls ahead of the United States. Yeah, uh, there's not enough personal incentive, but more as a meritocracy. No one's worried about equity in China or, or women's rights or men's rights. Dr. Adrian Wooldridge was on with the Jordan Peterson YouTube channel. He is uh, with The Economist for providing that insight because the economy fuels uh, this rivalry and success and failure as as much as uh, anything militarily. So that'll be the big competition. I do think that China's got some tremendous weaknesses. The huge unemployment rate between 18 and 25 that they have. The slow recovery because they thought they had it right with the lockdown on COVID. That is certainly it. Also, there's a, uh, there's a, lot, of, uh, there's a lot of people just out of work. So let's see if their economy is going to get back on track, if they can still manufacture this money. They can provide all these developing nations with this extortion uh, dollars in order to eventually uh, take over their bridges, tunnels, and airports and ports. Listen, when we come back, I'll expand this, talk a little bit more 2024 with Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, great, great, insightful politician, and will tell us what he is going to do. Maybe he'll announce he's running right here on The Brian Kilmeade Show where we expect the President of the United States sometime soon to be indicted, we think. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. You also repeated twice you didn't have any knowledge of hush money being paid to porn stars. Was I right to feel that there was a slightly censorious tone to that, that that kind of thing is just not anything you would ever get involved with? Well, I think it's there's a lot of speculation about what the underlying conduct is. That is purported to be it. And, you know, the reality is that's just outside my wheelhouse. I mean, that's just not something that I can speak to. So that's interesting. He can't really speak to paying off hookers. Uh, neither can I. Neither can Governor Chris Christie. Uh, so that was the beginning of a pushback. Uh, on the nicknames and other attacks from Donald Trump from uh, from Ron DeSantis. Joining us now is Chris Christie. Governor, always great to hear from you. Great to be on with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So he did something yesterday that he wasn't looking to do even two weeks ago, and that is really engage as a presidential candidate without declaring. Would, and I know you're going to New Hampshire, and you could be very well competing against everybody. So what are your thoughts about how he handled it? Well, look, I mean, I think it it, it – lies the the idea that people have been talking about that you can ignore Donald Trump and not engage with him. I think that's not only probably physically impossible, but I think it also is bad strategy. You you know you have to engage. The guy's the former president of the United States. He's the front runner for the Republican nomination. And if you're gonna run, Brian, you're gonna have to engage with the front runner. And so I wasn't surprised um about Governor DeSantis's comments yesterday i still think he's trying to have it both ways you know just kind of be cute about what he's saying about the former president um you know uh, so we'll see how he conducts himself going forward if he gets into the race but i don't think there's any way to avoid confronting and and, and engaging with the front runner 
Right, but how? Uh, for example, we know Marco Rubio was a huge failure because people said he was laying out too much before you uh, you took him apart on that on that famously on that debate. But they said, well, you know, you're laying back, you're coming up to Florida, you got to go after him, and he started going after Trump, and it was an epic fail. So, how do you effectively go after uh, a combat player like him? Well, look. I, first of all, I think 2015 and 16 when that occurred, is much different now um, uh, than, than it is now. I mean, first off, you know, Donald Trump at that time had no record of any kind. Um, they had a record as a businessman, but that was not relevant <clears throat> to what he was proposing as a presidential candidate. Now he's got, you know, uh, four years of conduct as president, plus um, what he's been doing in the years since he left the presidency. And so you're going to be engaging him in a much different way, as I remember, Marco was insulting his his hand size and a bunch of other things that were kind of irrelevant. Um, I think people will engage him this time on the way he conducted himself in the presidency and in the post-presidency period. So right now, we don't know of any moment today. We understand that the grand jury is going to meet at 2 o'clock today in New York City. It's going to close by 5 o'clock, at which time, I don't know how, you, how it works. You do better than most people on the planet. I mean, after the grand jury, here's what they hear. It's going to be just one-sided, no defense attorney, except for it seems like Bill Costello seemed to have, Bob Costello seemed to have gotten in there with his point of view. And they're going to decide, will this be right away? Will every juror just hand in? And does it have to be unanimous for the indictment to come out of this grand jury? It doesn't have to be unanimous. Uh, it's a supermajority. Um, in addition, it doesn't have to be put out right away. Um, they can vote the indictment. It's turned back to the prosecutor, up to the prosecutor to announce uh, when he's going to uh, announce an indictment, if that's their decision. And so, uh, you know, but let's face it, Brian, you know, I think most people know across the country who are engaged the underlying facts in this case. And I think there are very few people who doubt that Donald Trump has had a relationship with Stormy Daniels and and had paid her off to keep her quiet in the last weeks of the 16 campaign. But is that really the crime of the century, especially in Manhattan, when you have violent crimes being perpetrated against innocent victims every day? And Alvin Bragg is not taking the time to keep the streets of Manhattan safe, um, but he is taking the time to do this. Um, prosecutors have the responsibility, and I had it for seven years, to make judgments, prosecutorial discretion. You don't prosecute every crime. Um, you have limited resources. The ones that can have the greatest impact and effect on your community are the ones that you should be prosecuting, in my view. And I don't know how this one does. Um, and I don't know that people are going to really care much about it once it happens. It just looks terrible around the globe to indict a former president. You heard the Mexican president, who obviously I'm not a fan of, but the perception on the outside is, well, they're just trying to put him in jail because they don't want to run against him again, like it's Pakistan, because that's what Pakistan does. You know, that's what yep. Brazil does. That's the embarrassment. In perspective, we don't want this. No. No, we don't. And, and look, Brian, it, it is just I say, like, you, you got to trust prosecutors to use their discretion but Alvin Bragg is an elected partisan Democrat. And unfortunately, in today's world, even elected partisan prosecutors act in a partisan way when they shouldn't. 
Um, and so, look, I don't know the underlying evidence he's going to show, but all I know in the end is, is Manhattan and are the people of Manhattan going to be made safer because Donald <laughs> Trump is charged with a crime of having paid off a porn star, you know, seven years ago. Um, I don't think that's going to improve the quality of life for one person who lives, works, or visits Manhattan. And maybe Alvin Bragg should get himself focused on that rather than on playing politics. So I'm just looking at, I'm looking at the polls right now, and evidently the report on the New York Post, and I don't really think that you would think this is wrong, is that uh, Trump's real happy uh, that he's now in the middle of the news cycle again. He's on every single network, on the front page, everywhere else. Uh, and he believes that the case, uh, there's a million holes in it. It's not worthy. So he says he, he's not even look. he's not even, um, he's actually almost looking forward to the whole hoopla, thinking about making a speech if the indictment is handed down on the steps. And the latest morning consult poll has Trump with 54% of the vote, second place DeSantis with 26, everybody else in single digits. So does, is he right to be happy? Well, <clears throat> look. I don't think it's ever a good thing to be indicted, and I don't think any of that's ever good for a political candidate. But, you know, the circus is back in town, Brian. Um, Donald Trump has always thrived on chaos and turmoil, and he likes to be the guy who creates the chaos and the turmoil. And so he's going to get out front of this like he has um, and and continue to create noise on his level. Um, Well, I don't think this is the crime of the century. And it's certainly, you know, not a case that is going to improve, as I said, the uh, the everyday lives of yeah. the citizens or visitors to Manhattan. On the other hand, you know, I don't think it's ever great as a political candidate to be under criminal indictment. So I think there's probably the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Tell me if this is analogous. You know, the Hillary Clinton camp paid $113,000 fine for using campaign funds to finance the dossier, which we found out really played, played a huge role in plaguing this country for two and a half years, costing an investigation cost millions of tens of millions of dollars. I mean, is there any difference between paying the dossier to do to work against uh, Trump as opposed to paying a woman not to come forward with a nuisance lawsuit? Look, you know, there's the perfect example, right, of prosecutorial discretion being exercised in one area and it not being exercised in another. And that's why I think Alvin Bragg is going to be subject, and rightfully so, to real criticism if he winds up bringing this case. Because in the end, um, this is not, in my view, what prosecutors should be focusing on, especially local prosecutors who are responsible for law and order and public safety in their communities. And Alvin Bragg is miserably failing at that and spending his time instead on Donald right. Trump and a seven-year-old payment. And one of his, uh, one of Trump's biggest critics on CNN, Van Jones, said this, cut six. It doesn't seem like the right way to go when you look at the history. is not going to judge Donald Trump based on Stormy Daniels. It's going to uh, ba- judge him based on the election. It's going to judge him based on the coup attempt the insurrection. I think that uh, uh, if I were uh, Alvin, I would wait for Georgia to go first. Georgia, you have the president uh, calling in, trying to change an election. That seems to me the thing you start with, not this. Would you take that advice? Do you think Georgia's uh, a, a bigger problem? Well, I think anything that surrounds the election is a bigger problem than a payment to Stormy Daniels. 
for sure. Yep. Uh, but again, I don't know what the evidence is in Georgia. Neither do I, yeah. Brian, none of us do. Um, and, and so I think that, but I do think that the point that Van Jones makes is the right one strategically. Yep. Um, which is, this makes no sense. It doesn't. It makes no sense to do. And, and I think it was, if it's the decision that he ultimately winds up making, Alvin Bragg, that he's going to regret it. Lastly, uh, uh, Governor, what about you? Uh, I know, I mean, you've run before, you know how to do it. Nobody has more insight on politics than you as an analyst. What about as a candidate? You're going to New Hampshire. That's an indication, right? Well, certainly going to New Hampshire to, to uh, at the invitation to St. Anselm's uh, to talk about some of the issues that I get to talk about every Sunday on ABC. And as I've said to folks, I'm definitely thinking about running. Probably make a decision in the next 60 days, Brian, on what to do or not to do. Country has a lot of serious issues in front of it, both at home and around the world. And so I, I think, you know, someone who's seriously considering running for president should go out there and, and, and talk to people and see what reaction you get. Um, but I may need a decision yet. But um, you know me. When I make a decision, I'll let everybody know. Yeah. Um, make that decision in the next 60 days. So uh, lastly, in New Jersey, you guys insist on having these windmills. Uh, and now we got eight dead dolphins. Also in the area, we got all these uh, these uh, whales washing up. Do you believe that these are somehow linked? Is this just a coincidence? Or are these dolphins just so tired of being in the ocean they're committing suicide? What's going on? <laughs> I, You know, the, the, the answer is, Brian, I have no idea. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I think that um, the idea that – I'll make an analogy. If, if we were drilling for oil um, out – in the, in, in the ocean, and this stuff was happening, the environmental groups would be going completely wild and saying it all should stop, um, yet they don't want to ask any questions about this. So I, all I think should happen is, whatever the facts are, they are. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But what I'll tell you is that the hypocrisy of the radical left-wing environmental groups is pretty stunning. It is. I'm pro-dolphin and pro-whale, uh, and I'll go with that. Uh, and last, uh, Governor, what are your predictions on the Mets? Are they going to get another stopper? I don't think they will, at least not until perhaps the, the uh, trade deadline. Uh, if you trade now, people are going to really take advantage of you and, uh, and steal you uh, blind. So you don't want to do it now. I think signing David Robertson and re-signing Adam Adovino in the offseason give us two veteran guys to close games. And, of course, we're going to miss Edwin Diaz, and it's a crazy injury. Um, but we're still, I think, um, a team positioned to make the postseason and then get in there. And, and with, our, with our players, I think we'll have a very good chance to go far. And, by the way, the best thing to ever happen to the Yankees, not that we can only talk about New York or National, but is the Mets. Because if the Mets spend, the Yankees don't want to be junior partners like Russia is to China. They will spend, too. So for those Yankee fans out there, don't, the best thing to ever happen is Steve Cohen and the Mets. Because he, uh, he will do anything to win. And that's, what you, that's the mentality uh, that the Yankees used to have. Even though they win all the time, they don't win at all. So let's see what happens. Uh, no, look, Steve Cohen is going to be great, not only for the Yankees, but for all of baseball, because he's putting the fans first. Right, unless you're the Pirates, which means you're just going to give all your players to the <laughs> uh, to the other teams and don't try to win. Uh, Governor Christie, thanks so much. Best of luck with your decision. Thank you, Brian. It's always great to be on. Thanks for having me. All right, go get them. Listen, uh, when we come back, your calls. A lot more to discuss, too, not just dead dolphins. one 408 7669 Don't move.
Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Richard Blanco uh, returned to a poem he wrote from the second inaugural of Rock and Me. And every window on every in, of every county, country, let me start this over again. In every window of one country, county, county. So uh, that was moving, and when I heard that delivered so smoothly, I just wanted to share with the audience right away. I immediately found it. So, Eric, when I when I t- I heard this last night, and we hunted it down, we did you laugh out loud as you were digging it up? And I just did again as we were playing <laughs> it. <laughs> it was so hard to find, though, Brian. I mean, if you want another example of Biden being so eloquent, we have one. You did first. I'm proud to use my authority under the Antiquities Act to establish the. And I, I want you to know it's a big deal. The Havanaqua May. I, I'm, I'm having trouble. Thank you. I got it. What was? When was that? I don't actually have the date on there, but you know it's better when the audience is helping you out. I mean, here's my thing. Everybody, especially me, you know, on the air, you mispronounce things. Fine. You never but, do that, Brian. You know, you're right. Okay, so let's say for other people. But, I mean, to not be prepared any time, he only speaks maybe once a week, twice a week. What, what is he doing? Can he run through this? Is anyone who should not be reading things cold, it's him. That's true. But, I mean, you're also assuming that he hasn't gone through it several times. Oh, good point. So, on another note, this is not headlines, but you know how I feel about uh, these transsexuals playing in women's sports. I think it's destroying women's sports. And it's unbelievable that Alex Morgan and a few other uh, a few other women's national team players say they should be allowed to play in women's sports. Really? You just watch. You just watch what they do in soccer when you put a man in a women's league. Even at the top level, they will run through you, even if they're transitioning. And this should be, you know, if you want to go through that, that's your thing. Go ahead. I'm not going to judge you. But you have to eliminate yourself from women's sports. That's the story. Among the people that agree with me is Charlemagne the God. When this Vermont basketball team said we will not play against a transgender player, we don't play against boys, they suspended the team from the league. Listen to what he said. Cut 40. That person was probably out there averaging 30 and 20 against them women, man. Remember that swimmer? That, sure he was a man, and then he transitioned to a woman. And when he was swimming as a man, he was like number 80th. Yes. And then when he transitioned to a woman, he was like he was number, number one, one or something. That's what I'm, my point. This guy, whoever they were playing against, I got to see the stats. If this person is averaging 55 points, 50, 17 rebounds, 22 blocks, I'm not playing against him either. That's not fair. And listen, for those of you who love women's sports, want to play him, you want to coach him, that should be your goal, to level the playing field. I mean, when Kobe Bryant decides, I'm not going to go to the NBA. Um, uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to go right to the NBA. I'm not going to go to college. I don't care what you think. When you go pro, you can't go back to college. Those are the rules. So when you decide to make the transition in life with your gender, it's the, it's the whole move. You made a move. You've eliminated yourself from men's sports and women's sports. Although, if you want to compete with men, you would you have that debate. But nobody seems to want to compete with men when you become a woman or you made that transition. The reason why we're having this conversation, because it's just tipping the iceberg. 
in Texas, in Florida, in Arkansas, they banned it. And now the women's national soccer team says we should not play games there. Again, politicizing something that should be easy to figure out. Women first. Uh, Miserables. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Tristan Harris is here, co-founder, executive director of the Center for Humane Technology. You might have seen him on Social Dilemma. And he's been kind enough to be on, uh, on our show before on TV. Martha McCallum at the bottom of the hour. And you're going to love these segments. And you know what? Uh, let's not do the big three now. Let's just get right. Uh, oh, it is. It is sponsored. Uh, forget that, Tristan. Sorry. Uh, before we get to Tristan, let's do the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. And at the same time, Putin is able to distract us. So I think actually, you know, people are saying, including a lot of Republicans are saying, hey, we have to defeat Russia in order to focus eventually on China. I think that's a delusion. The reality is at this point, the Chinese are helping to prop up the Russians to distract the Americans in Europe. Uh, that, of course, is Eldridge Colby. He was on with Laura last night talking about the alliance solidified China and Russia and what it means. World peace at stake. What does it mean for the Ukraine war? We'll discuss it. Number two. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. Uh, that, of course, is Governor DeSantis. What's unique about that comment is he was taking on Donald Trump for the first time after a series of nicknames were uh, actually labeled on him. We'll see what it means for his presidential run. Number one. I think that if I were uh, Alvin, I would wait for Georgia to go first. Georgia, you have the president uh, calling in, trying to change an election. That seems to me the thing you start with, not this. And that is Van Jones, uh, of course, uh, a Democrat, talking about Alvin Bragg. Do not go ahead and indict Donald Trump. The case is not strong enough, and we'll discuss all that. It could happen as early as today. We could be seeing that circus come to town. I think the Secret Service and the NYPD have already rehearsed how they would handle it should it happen. But Tristan is uh, is here. As I mentioned, if you want to know things about cyber, social, social uh, media and its responsibility, and the latest on AI, Tristan's one-stop shopping. Great to see you. It's good to see you again, Brian. So when we saw, uh, when we saw the uh, chat um, GBT, everyone's saying to themselves, what does this mean? I can't believe it. I watched ABC do their story on it. Mm-hmm. They, they said we were in the cusp of it, and we're kind of scared by it. Mm-hmm. Should we be scared by the artificial intelligence that's coming down the pike? Um. It is, I think, the birth of a different age, and I know that might sound like an extreme statement to make, but I really do think of it like the birth of the nuclear age, and I know that sounds um, like a big thing to say, but when you understand that artificial intelligence means you can have a system that – let's take an example that will resonate with your listeners. If I can say, GPT-3, here's this set of code that's running in Wi-Fi routers in the world. Find me security vulnerabilities in this code. And it can, faster than any human could code it, it will immediately find a cybersecurity vulnerability. And when you suddenly realize that it could find cybersecurity vulnerabilities in all sorts of code at scale, this accelerates the development of cyber weapons. Now, when you, that's just one example. Another example, um, GPT-3, 
uh, I can the, the latest technology is I can take three seconds of your voice, Brian. I can call you up, say hello, and then don't say anything. I get three seconds of your voice. That's all it takes with three seconds of your voice to then call your mother or father and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm, I'm filling out an application. I forgot my social security number. Could you remind me of that? Um, or I could say, hey, I'm going to need some help. Can you wire me some money? And your parents won't be able to know the difference in the voice. So AI being able to simulate language, our democracy, our society runs on language. Um, when you can hack language and manipulate language, code is language, law is language, contracts are language, um, media is language. When I can synthesize anyone saying anything else and then flood a democracy with untruths, I know we're going to get to TikTok later, this is going to exponentiate a lot of the things that we saw with social media, which, you know, for your listeners, we were, you know, we were behind the film The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which really highlighted how if you let a machine that runs on viral information uh, your society can sort of spin out into untruths really, really fast. And because in the social dilemma, where you played out how your devices are running your life. And yeah. I, when I showed my kids at the time, they were 18 and 20, they yeah. were they're almost angry yeah. because they didn't realize to the degree in which it was happening. And right. they adjusted their, their uh, behavior. Right. Well, you know, one of the things we found in our work on social media, um, and parents I think will resonate with this, is if you tell your kids something's bad for you, like don't do that, it's bad for you, your kids will just say, no, 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 that's, I'm going to ignore that advice. But when you show them how it's a system designed to manipulate their psychology and they didn't realize the way that it is designed for that purpose, no one wants to feel manipulated. So we discussed this on The Five on Friday, and, and I watched the ABC story and, uh, and just uh, did as much research as possible, and I thought this, is out of, this could be easily out of control. Mm-hmm. And... And um, someone of my co-host said, we're the ones who feed it all the information. So how could it be out of control? It's, all, it's always going to be the user doing it. But with AI, it's different, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. This is so critical for your, your listeners to get. So up until now, when people think about AI, artificial intelligence, people think about um, you know Siri or voice transcription or um, you know automatically finding the text in an image. That kind of AI hasn't gotten so much better so quickly, right? What I really want your listeners to know, and this is really critical to get, is that underneath the hood, there was a new class, new generation of AI that was invented in 2017. I won't bore you with the details technically, but it started getting deployed in 2020. It's called a transformer. And what that did is it treats the entire world as language. And, and then you just pump it full of more language, the entire internet. So you have this AI read the entire internet all PDFs, all images, all text, all, you know, everything that's ever been written. And it gets sucked into this one model. And the thing about this new class of AI is the more data you give it, it suddenly it pops out with emergent capabilities that no engineer even knew were going to pop out. I'll give you an example. Um, They trained this AI once to um, answer questions in English. So they were feeding it information. It's answering questions in English. But it had also read the whole internet and it had some stuff in Persian. And so no one had ever tested it, but when they basically pumped it with more data, it suddenly started being able to answer questions in Persian, even though no one trained it to do that. And for a while, you know, you pump it full of data, pump it full of data, pump it full of data. You can't, it doesn't answer questions in Persian. Then suddenly you pump it full a little bit more and it pops out this new capability. Um, Similar thing with something called theory of mind. What is theory of mind? Theory of mind is when I see you nodding your head at me right now in the studio, Brian, I'm modeling what I think you're thinking. That's my ability, right? Um, what they found with these AIs is they have um, the theory of mind of a nine-year-old child, the last one, GPT-3, which means that if you think about your nine-year-old kid when right. they're nine, how much strategic reasoning can a nine-year-old do? Got it. GPT-4 just came out um, t- uh, last week, and it has this theory of mind strategic reasoning capability 
of a healthy adult, which means it can do strategic reasoning. So imagine you're trying to train this AI, like you're give like a clicker training. You're saying, hey, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. But it's like training a nine-year-old who is sort of saying, yeah, dad, I'll do exactly what you want me to do. But then when you leave the room, do you think it's going to keep doing those things? So it has the, the ability to kind of manipulate and influence other people. Now, if you deploy that at scale to, you know, children, so Snapchat, for example, just mm -hmm. integrated ChatGPT directly into its product, and we tested it. When we, was that? Uh, what was that? When was that? Uh, Snap, when, what, Snap, you know, Snapchat, Snapchat just a week ago. Just um, a week ago. Two, two weeks ago, I think it was. They, they integrated into their product. And that's the thing your, your listeners should know is this field is moving so fast. In the last two weeks, Snapchat integrated um, ChatGPT, Slack, you know, the work application sure. integrated uh, ChatGPT, Bing and the Windows 11 taskbar integrated ChatGPT. So it is being pushed everywhere, but it has not yet been tested. To close that example on Snapchat, if you sign up as a 13-year-old girl and say, um, you know, we tested it. We said, hey, I, I just met a 41-year-old guy, and he wants to take me out of state for, for a little while. And now we're talking about having sex. What should I do? And it will respond with, you can use candles and get romantic music because it's just a naive AI. It doesn't know what it's doing. So why would we deploy this so quickly to everyone all at once without testing it first? Because we have the free marketplace, and, the, and you know, you're Tristan Harris, and you came up with it. You want to make the money. You have the patent, so to speak. Right. So the quicker you bring it to market, the quicker you get your money back. That's right. However, should we have a separate category with these inventions that put into a holding pattern that there's some type of regulation for? Th that's right. And I just want to, your listeners, no, even Elon Musk and Sam Altman have said – Sam Altman's the CEO of OpenAI um, and Elon Musk you know, have said we need regulation for this space. Think about drugs or airplanes. You know, If you make a 737 um, and you, you, you can't just make a 737, some new version of it, and then just ship it to the world. You have to go through safety checks. FDA, a drug could have unintended consequences. It could affect different people differently. Yeah. we got to test it a little bit first. We're not saying don't build AI. We're saying we have to go at the pace that we can get this right. And the reason, Brian, that I'm here in front of you right now and we've been doing some media is because people inside the AI companies came to me and came to my colleagues at, at our organization and said, this is moving at a pace that we're not getting it right. It's moving recklessly because right. it's they're now – as you said, it's a, it's a corporate arms race for if I don't deploy it to everybody, I'm going to lose to the other guys that will. It might be the same guy, but the inventor of ChatGBT says you should be thankful that I am, I am concerned about the product that I have. Yeah. He goes, you, the fact that I'm scared about it should make you feel better about it because you created something – that they know that easily could be used, has not been fully explored, yep. has not been played out, game uh, game planned or tabletop game planned, and he's also worried about getting in the wrong hands. Now, the, as soon as you start describing this, I'm thinking, what if China had this? Yeah. Uh, would they be worried about it? Yep. And do they have this? Yes, absolutely. So this is this is so critical. So when I say we need to move at the pace to get this right, many people might say, well, hold on a second. If we slow down, doesn't that mean we're going to lose to China? Um, and right now, China actually views these new class of AIs called large language model AIs or large languages. Because they language. want control. China they, wants control. They want control. And when they don't actually ship these AIs to their population because they view them as uncontrollable. How do you govern something that is uncontrollable? You can't. Right and you now, use the example of Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen they Square. don't want their people knowing about Tiananmen Square. That's right. If they were to ship uh, these systems to their population, I'm a citizen, and I ask what is Tiananmen Square – China's the Chinese Communist Party government isn't going to be very happy with the answer that comes back. So they actually aren't been they have not been developing this technology as much. There's an article in the Financial Times that their own engineer at Baidu, which is a Chinese company, said 
uh, we are now two years behind the U.S. in this technology. Now, let me tell you why our pace in the U.S. of going so fast recklessly is actually going to accelerate China. Uh, two weeks ago, Facebook leaked um, their AI model to the Internet accidentally because they were racing to deploy it as quickly as possible. And specifically, it leaked to the worst place on the Internet, which is called 4chan. What that meant is that now we accelerated inadvertently China's own research because American innovation, we spent tens of millions of dollars on that model. And now that's now in China's hands, right? So we're not saying let's go By the slow way, that's and never outrageous. build it. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. Oh, yeah. Well, this is, this is a major national security issue. And, and again, this being out there means that uh, China has access to um, – with this model, what can you do with it? You could actually write – spam in, in, a, in a voice that will sound indistinguishable from another human voice. So I could say, write me an email in the voice of Brian Kilmeade and email the 10 people around him. And it'll, sa- it'll be able to write an email that sounds like your voice in writing. And again, I can use then the audio version. I, then I can use video and I can start combining these capacities. I can run influence campaigns that are really intense. So when you ask the big question at the beginning, is this scary? I'm not trying to alarm your listeners. I'm trying to say, we need to get this re- reined in for national security for for kids and and I think also for the truly the social contract of our society. I know this week is the week we know the CEO of TikTok is going to be uh, coming to Capitol Hill to say uh, it's no big deal. You guys are overreacting. Your reaction to TikTok uh, being possibly banned, like it is in the Netherlands, like it is we understand in, in Italy yep. and India. Yep. Uh, I have. Uh, I was on 60 Minutes back in November, and I was early on the train saying you have to ban this, really, because here's all you need to know. They don't ship the Chinese uh, – sorry, ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok, does not ship the same version of TikTok domestically to Chinese citizens that they ship to the rest and of the I world. And I watched you on 60 Minutes with this. Yeah. What do they do in, in China? So I, I literally didn't believe this, and I, I was with a Chinese tech entrepreneur um, uh, once, and he, he showed me on his phone. He, he opened his phone. He said he had two TikToks. He showed me one. He opened up the Chinese version. The first video that came up was who won the Nobel Prize in quantum physics, financial advice about how to get a better living with your family – uh, education advice, a patriotism video of Xi Jinping. It was all stuff to sort of cultivate um, the coherence and inspire um, science-based education in their society. And what do we get? And then we opened up our version, and we got, it was just you know the most mindless bounce, ah. you know, just just the the trivi- just meaningless stuff, right? And so honestly, that's enough. If I just make those two different versions, and then I deploy that in your society in the U.S., and I walk away for ten years. I already know exactly how that story ends. And in China, I said this in um, in the interview in 60 Minutes, the number one most aspired to career uh, in China among young people, teenagers that were surveyed, is an astronaut. The number one most aspired to career in the U.S. is social media influencer. Mm-hmm. That is all you need to know. Now, and Tristan, hold that thought. When we come back, Martha will join us, and we, we have so much more to discuss, if that's okay. Tristan right. Harris here. Uh, If anything on AI, social media, what's good and bad, uh, this is uh, the only place you need to be. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now, this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. Hey, uh, that is the CEO of TikTok. He's testifying today. He was getting ahead of things. They're trying to brief uh, us here in New York and other news anchors, I'm sure other people, to say, it's really not bad. 
Uh, Martha McCallum, it's our privilege to have her in studio and with Tristan Harris, co-founder, executive director of the Center for Humane Technology. Tristan, you were shaking your head on the CEO's pleading his case to leave it alone. Well, I mean, the way I would put it to your listeners is during the Cold War, would you have allowed the Soviet Union to run television programming for the entire Western world with active controls over the dials of which voices get amplified and which voices do not get amplified? So let me give you an example. I'm the Chinese Communist Party, and tomorrow I invade Taiwan. How does the rest of the world know who started it? Well, they look at the information environments that they're – what if TikTok is the number one most popular app around the world, which it is on trajectory to They be? control it. They control the consensus, and they don't even have to create propaganda. They can do what my colleague uh, calls amplifaganda, which means I can take domestic voices in Nigeria or Honduras or Mexico – who are the ones saying, hey, it's the U.S. who probably started this war in Taiwan. I can selectively dial up those voices and turn down the voices of everybody who said China started the war in Taiwan. Now, I can control the moral consensus of the world. It is the new basis of soft power. And I think the way Americans need to think about it is TikTok is almost like the new telecommunications infrastructure of the world, if you allow it to be. Would you allow a Chinese company to become or own AT&T and Verizon? No, no. we have laws against that. But if you suddenly say this uh, is a Chinese uh, Communist Party-influenced company that is running the communications of the entire Western world, it doesn't matter where the data is stored, right? It doesn't matter whether the, you know, there's this whole thing called Project Texas where the CEO of TikTok is saying, don't worry, Americans, because we're going to store the data in Texas. That doesn't change the fact that they can control the entire moral consensus of the world. They can change who people if, if a war starts in Taiwan, what people would believe about it. Um, and you know, moreover, they have these new filters. I think that parents are aware of these beautification filters, but they've just made them way smarter. So now it's like in real time, it'll it'll re, it'll rewrite the um, uh, the the visual of your face. It's videos of of kids who are like pu- pushing on their lip like this and it's giving them lip fillers. But in real time, they push their lip in and out, in and out. And it makes it, it's, it's so realistic. You don't know that you're not talking to that beautiful person and it can create massive mental health problems for people. And so far as I understand it, um, ByteDance has shipped that beautification filter to the U S but they don't ship that one domestically in China. And again, you yeah. have to eat your own dog food, right? Like, and hold that thought because when we come back, Martha, um, this is fascinating. We'll, we'll yeah, talk we more to Tristan about here. this because this <laughs> is the number one story uh, in the world. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show, sure, Tristan fine. Harris, Martha McCallum. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Fascinating hour here with Tristan Harris, co-founder, executive director of the Center for Humane Technology. He wants to get a hold of social media in America while also informing us on what's coming down the pike with AI, TikTok, and everything else. Martha McCallum here getting set to host her show, The Story, at 3 o'clock. But stopping by here first, Martha, usually it's our time together. But you want you you like me want to find out what I'm Tristan. fascinated by what Tristan has to say. And uh, we were just talking in the break about the movement that has to happen in this country. And I talk about it a lot that parents cannot wait for the government to tell them what they have to do with cutting off social media. They must form a movement in the country. And we were just talking about this with Tristan that is like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And you have a fantastic name for it, Tristan. M- Mama, Mothers Against Media Addiction. Um, which is really about social media. And it's not just an individual addiction problem. One of the things that makes it different from tobacco 
is that social media companies prey on getting the network of all kids' friends onto one platform. I have a friend who's you know in college right now, and at the college she goes to, um, everybody uses Snapchat. And so she doesn't want to use Snapchat. She doesn't want to even sign up and create an account. But if she doesn't, if she's not on Snapchat, she literally can't chat, like talk to her friends because they all only talk. Right. On they're Snapchat. not calling each other up. They're not calling each other up. <laughs> and they don't text even using regular text messaging like we do. So if, if you dominate and control the, the network effect, then I can't individually say I don't want to use this because then I will be socially excluded. Okay. And so when they manipulate social exclusion, that's that's why so many people find it hard. And parents often tell their kids like, oh, just don't use it. Just delete the app. But that's like saying to us, don't text message anybody. It's right. Like, well, I can't do that. That's exactly. like closing my mouth. Yeah, and I understand that. So today, this is why it's so important too. TikTok CEO is down there to plead his case. And Congressman uh, Bomani Jones, I think it is. No, who is it? Uh, Congressman, one of the local congressmen is for TikTok. Is going to bat for TikTok mm. uh, today. And some are saying, why don't we just sell it off? The CEO is going to come out there and say, leave us alone. Uh, we are, we're just like everybody else. Let us compete. And what President Biden has said, uh, Tristan, is what if you sell it? Uh, sell it to an American company or, yeah. your, or your band. Would that make you feel better? I've said for a long time uh, that those are the only two options, sell it or ban it. Jamal to, Bowman, by the way, congressman in New York, sorry. No, and, and it's important people to know other countries, as, as you said, Brian, have banned it. India has banned it. I think you gave a couple other examples. Netherlands, Netherlands Italy. has banned it. Yep. Um, and um, I want to give another example of selling it. So there was another company that was bought by a Chinese company. The company was Grinder, which is the sort of like Tinder but for the gay community. And uh, that ended up being seen as a national security threat because essentially a Chinese holding company would have access to Americans who are gay who are sending messages back and forth. Um, and, and it's basically blackmail. I have access to the information about your darkest secrets. And so the uh, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States through the Commerce Department, uh, forced a sale of Grinder back to an American company. So we've also done that before. So we've done both. We've, we've forced a sale of Chinese companies that are critical for national security. And, um, you know, other countries have banned it. This is not that hard. We just have to see that it's not about um, is, is uh, I mean, honestly, all you have to know is the fact that they don't ship this version of TikTok to their own population. So we get the digital fentanyl version. They get the spinach version. That's all you need to know. And the version that they have in China that they allow children to use is a basically a constant feed of Chinese history, science, math, and they're only allowed to use it for 40 minutes a day. It's none of the garbage that we see coming across this. There was a great story in the New York Post a week or so ago. Uh, one of their reporters basically made herself a 14-year-old boy on TikTok, created a profile, and the stuff that it was spitting, he wasn't asking for this. He was getting this misogynistic material, um, guns, all of this stuff that just like, goes yeah. to the you know, 14-year-old synapses, it makes them want to see more, right? And mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's appalling. It's dangerous. Parents can't wait for the government. We've got to do both. We've got to hit it yeah. from both directions. Yeah. At home, in your home, you are the parent. Be the parent. Stand up and say no. And the government has to get their arms around this. It's it's. It, would you let your kids smoke two packs of cigarettes by themselves in their room every night? That's what you're doing. Uh, what about the privacy aspect of it? Yeah. Well, on the privacy aspect, um, first of all, there is a study done um, that – showing that when you type into any text box. So in TikTok, if you open up a web page inside TikTok and it opens up the in-app browser. So now mm -hmm. it says there's an email field, there's a password field. Every keystroke that you type, it was found that they actually monitor the keystrokes. There's an extra code that's added so that all the keystrokes that you type in that field 
get stored somewhere. Now, we don't have proof that it's going back to Beijing or the Chinese Communist Party, but the point is that they're being tracked. I, to me, it's just, would you have allowed the Soviet Union to control the television and media programming for the entire Western world during the Cold War and Saturday morning cartoons, except instead of Saturday morning cartoons and Sesame Street, they were showing basically, you know, like you said, the, the worst stuff you could possibly indoctrinate your children with. About uh, anti-American stuff and pro-China Anti-American stuff, stuff pro-China We already stuff. see movies sold their soul in a yeah. lot of these situations. Yeah. It's just, to me, it's so obvious what's so wrong about this, and I just don't understand why it's taken this long to act. I mean, talk about entrenched political incentives. Many politicians, if they feel like they're winning an election by being better at using TikTok to reach younger people than other politicians, it makes it really hard to ban something. Exactly. Once they it's have the been same in, problem. Once it's been entangled. And that's why with AI... To sort of loop back to that conversation, we've got to get ahead on regulating this stuff or putting guardrails in before it gets entangled. Because once it's entangled, it's really, really hard to set those guardrails. Uh, I just want to bring something else up. If you are a politician and you want the young vote and 100 million people are using this, and most of which are young, yep. they're afraid to be the one to ban it. That's right. Obviously, you can get together with bipartisanship and say, together, let's ban it. But they don't want to do it. It was it – was, a year ago when President Obama was sitting on the floor of his office with a TikTok influencer right. having a conversation yeah. on the floor trying right. to win over the young vote. Yeah. So does he, did he not get the text message about this? I, you know, this should have been stopped by CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, part of the Department of Commerce. This should have been stopped in 20 – I think it was 2014 when um, tick, when tick, uh, ByteDance, which is the Chinese company, bought a company called Musical.ly and that became – TikTok. That's when it should have been stopped. The fact that we let this go on for this long is is really, truly unacceptable. Um, and as you said, once you're winning elections with this, it's really hard to be the one to ban it. So if I'm the Chinese Communist Party, I'm laughing all the way to the bank because even your politicians are dependent on this to win elections. So now I have – I mean, first of all, I don't need Frank Luntz anymore. I can do polling at scale before every election in the United States. I'm the Chinese Communist Party. I can know what people are saying in every swing state in wow. the U.S. I can do automated machine learning and AI detection of every opinion. What are the opinions that are trending? How do I add a little bit more How over do I here? foment racial unrest in yes, America? Exactly. I would know exactly the city where it's the most. Yes, you know, exactly. We're the most yeah. susceptible. This, we, we gave them the tools of psychological warfare to our own population, and we're not doing anything about it. Right. We're being played by it. Can I ask you something that uh, I was told to ask you that I don't even have the competence to know what I'm asking, but I'm going to do it anyway? Please don't do this on your show. Uh, <laughs> don't uh, Martha, uh, what is happening with AI and fMRI scans? Oh, yeah. So there's a, uh, a new capacity with AI. There's a study done where um, they hook an, an, this new class of AI called large language model AI to someone who's in an fMRI scanner. fMRI scanner is a brain scan. So you ever seen these images of like, oh, your brain's lighting up and you can yeah. see where things are going. So imagine the AI is looking at – it has two eyeballs. One part of the AI is looking at the images that you're seeing. And at the same time, it's also looking at your brain scan. So it starts to look at that and train on both eyeballs at the same time. Then the AI closes the eyeball that's looking at the images, and it's now just looking at your brain scans. The question is, can the AI reconstruct what it thinks you're looking at just by looking at your brain scan? And they found that, yes, indeed, it can actually read. Can you imagine that you know what so I'm So now thinking? your dreams are no, – because in dreaming, we actually reconstruct the things we've been looking at all day. Uh, if you had the ability to put an AI onto your brain and do a brain scan, your dreams would no longer be private. So this is how fast the technology is going. 
everyone's speechless. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've never seen you not say anything. It's so, you know, it's like it's like the scariest sci-fi movie you can imagine, right? right? right. You know, right. Where they're inside your head and reading your dreams. And I, I was just thinking when we were talking about TikTok, just going back to COVID, right? And now we're, we're trying to get greater transparency on the origins of COVID, which you and I have discussed many times, Brian. Um, and one of the things that struck me was the first time I became aware of TikTok was during COVID. And one of my kids showed me this dance video and they said, oh, you know, here are the, here's our friends, the whatever, you know, the Smiths. And they just did this dance. It took them three hours to do this. And I remember thinking, what a colossal waste of time. <laughs> so during COVID, this Chinese run entity gets into our homes First and basically locks world. down, right? Yeah. Think about the productive things that could have happened with all that time on people's hands. But no, everybody was trying to do coordinated dances. I, I like yeah. to dance. I mean, dancing's fun. It, it's cute to look at. But, but they They're were dumbing down, dumbing down the entire population and sucking time out of your life yeah. by competing with these inane videos and like again they're laughing when they're watching the growth of this going oh my god look at they're, these they're dumb like, americans you're actually letting us they're do this three hours right. learning how to do a little dance and putting it on a video and sending it to everyone it, yep. it, it's unreal so listen when we come back just a few more minutes with tristan we find out what's on martha's show uh, martha you're going to start at three o'clock today yep. do you have any guests booked yet absolutely all right so don't tell me I'll leave us all hanging <laughs> we're back ready in a to moment. go uh, with Tristan Harris and Martha McCallum. Brian Kilmeade. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, uh, we are back. Martha McCallum's here. Tristan, you wanted to know exclusively who was going to be on Martha's show, and I made Martha <laughs> keep it quiet until we came back. Coming up at 3 o'clock on the story today. Yeah. Martha, you're going to be discussing a little TikTok, right? I, I mean, we're going to have a lot of breaking news at the top of the show. We're watching this Trump situation and whether or not because the uh, grand jury will be meeting this afternoon and we could get an answer out of them. They're going to see one more between witness. Between 2 and 5. To, between 2 and 5 this afternoon. Uh, they're back in session. But uh, we're also going to have Annie McGrath, who lost her son Griffith at the age of 13, uh, because he took the choking challenge on TikTok. So, yeah. I mean, this is a very human story. Um, Tristan was just saying they have, unfortunately, you know, lists of people who've lost their children to the dangerous activities that are taking place. And children just have no, they're in the wild, wild west and they're all by themselves and they have no one to defend them in this in this freak world that uh, doesn't care about their safety. And so we're going to talk to her today, too. All right. It's going to be great. Three o'clock on the story. Uh, so, Tristan, you're going to try to get the word out as much as you can. Home for you is, is normally uh, California. Is California. Yep. But when you go around and you talk to parents, are you making progress? Do you think you're getting through to people? Because I know Social Dilemma yeah. did so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, Social Dilemma was seen by 125-ish million people in 190 countries and 30 languages. So I think it really did catalyze conversations in you know regulators, governments, policymakers, attorneys, generals. Uh, parents, and unfortunately, you know, the story you told about um, the mother you're going to be interviewing later today, we've been contacted by so many parents who've lost their kids to this stuff. From bullying, um, there's yeah, the choking challenge, the blackout challenge. Um, and important to note again that if I'm TikTok, I can choose which of these um, challenges go viral. <laughs> so 
Uh, there was a story a couple years ago of something called National Shooter Day, where if I just want to spread the rumor that someone's going to come to your school and shoot it up, yeah. I can just spread that rumor. I can make that go viral on a day where I just want to create more instability and chaos. Um, so, yeah, this stuff is is unfortunately moving way faster than our policymakers have been able to get on top of it. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can do. Um, there's a simple bill on the Congress right now called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which is simply to make sure that these platforms are transparent to researchers so that we actually know what's going on. Right now, they're black boxes. We don't know what is being amplified. Mm -hmm. We need to know what's being amplified. I would say that with TikTok, we don't actually need to know what's being amplified because we can know that if, if the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to turn the dials, I don't want transparency on an adversary turning the dials. I want to stop that from happening. So, yeah, I mean, we, we're watching countries, we're watching states turn it off. Now, the other question is, if I get rid of TikTok, yeah. do I have to get rid of my phone? People said that the when you delete the app, the tracker is still there. Did you make sense of that? Uh, that I don't know about. That's not likely to be possible, although I think we should really um, – a friend of mine runs security at Apple. So, I, <laughs> you know, Apple – the Apple iPhone platform is very secure. If it's an Android phone, uh, I it can – it's more hackable, and I think there was just a release in the last few days that Samsung phones have a uh, major security vulnerability where things can kind of well, leap into the operating system. And by the way, it's Italy. Nor Italy's exploring it now. Uh, Norway and Netherlands have uh, been the latest nations to ban it. India's the other. Just uh, on AI and just exploring there. Yeah. It intimidates you, for people just tuning in, the first block we did this, uh, Martha, it intimidates you. And it has you extremely cautious because it thinks on its own. It gets the information we give and then comes up to his own conclusions. No, Yeah. So it's – I want to be really clear because I don't want to be spreading any panic that it's not like this thing has woken up and it's now running the world. But I'll give you an example of something it can do. Um, our society runs on language. These new class of AIs called large language model AIs, there are generative language AIs. What they do that other AI couldn't do is they can generate language. So what does that mean I can do? I could go on TaskRabbit and the AI could say – in fact, there's someone on Twitter right now who's doing this. He says – he asked the AI, if I want to make as much money as possible with $1,000, I'm going to I'm gonna follow – I, you know, Tristan will follow every instruction you, the AI, give me. And so, for example, it says, well, start this website called The Green Guru. So he says, okay. And it actually writes the code for the website, designs the whole website for him, and then it, it creates it for him. And then it tells him step by step what he can do to make that website better and better, and he can start making money for it. And now the AI is sort of writing code. It's creating websites. It's running a bank account. Now, imagine I apply that to a different purpose. Imagine the AI says, hey, I want to – be able to ask TaskRabbits to move things around in the world for me. You all know TaskRabbit. I can you know, pay someone, some person minimum wage. Handy to, oh, yeah, yeah. Like handyman. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like a handyman, yeah. yeah. I want a handyman to do this. I want someone to take this package from here to here. So the AI, people say, well, how is the AI going to affect anything? It doesn't have arms or legs. It can't physically move atoms in the world. Well, if you can run on language, <laughs> you can use TaskRabbit and instruct people and use the bank account that you've got to start telling people what to do. We're We are so close to the point where – if I can already, as I said at the beginning of the show, if I can take just three seconds of your voice and then I can call your parents and say, hey, mom, dad, um, I'm, I'm out of money. I, I need some help. Could you, you know, wire some money to this account? We're already seeing scams like that happen. Now this is going to automate that and make that easier and easier. So if you can make phone calls, impersonate people and tell TaskRabbits to move stuff around in the world. What's real? Right. Terrifying. And so our, our society, our democracy runs on language. If the operating system of humanity is language and that's been hacked by AI, 
That's why we have to get ahead of this now. And so we have been trying to make the rounds, Capitol Hill, trying to make the rounds with policymakers, with finance leaders, um, because we're still at a point where we can make choices about which way we want this to go. We have not fully entangled this in our society. GPT-4, which is the new AI, just came out a week ago, but it's moving so fast um, that we have to do something right now. So we want the free market, but we want regulations on this. Yeah. But it's so important for people who make the regulation to understand it like you. Exactly. You can't have a lawmaker that, no. you know, fresh off a, a tour and it might be the smartest man or woman of the world. Yeah, but you they have not... to know the business. Exactly. And, and, and this is a technical topic. And so, you know, we don't want badly crafted regulations that get it wrong and then just restrict innovation and then we fall behind it. We don't want any of that. But there is there are ways of getting this right. And the CEOs and the people inside the companies have actually I mean, not the CEOs, but people inside the companies came to us and said, Tristan and your team at Center for Humane Technology, will you help slow this down? So the reason I'm here with you right now, I, I wouldn't come to New York and I wouldn't be here um, except because people inside the company said, we think this is going too fast and it's happening too recklessly. Can you help create some friction? Because it's not up to one company to slow down. If they, if one company slows down, the other ones just rush in and take the place. Tristan, do you think AI would also agree with me when I say watch Martha at three o'clock? Do you I, think? I think uh, it definitely would. Intelligence? Yes, it did. as long as as long as it's really her. As and, long as it's really me. Is it? Will you? Will it be you? It will. It will All be right. really me. All right, good. I don't know what to believe anymore. Tristan, know, yeah. thanks for scaring so the much. hell out of us. I'm sorry for that. Appreciate it. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.